Good morning, everybody. Had a major dilemma this morning. I uh, was getting ready to come, and I said to Allison, shorts or long pants? And I said, Arnie is leading the praise team this morning. He definitely will be wearing shorts. I come in, and he's wearing, he's wearing long pants, and he said, this is what he says to me. He says, I used to always wear shorts right up till Thanksgiving, but then someone told me I need to grow up. So, I'm not sure what Arnie was implying by that. I think he just doesn't have as nice legs as I do. So, I... Okay, well, I knew Ben would have shorts and his sandals on. That's until the snow flies, I think. So, I could always count on Ben having his shorts on. And tough old Cliff moves out to BC, but he still comes back to, to Ontario. And he's got his shorts on. So, I knew I made the right call. Made the right call. I was reminded uh, this week of a saying that I heard a while ago. And the saying is this, that tears in our eyes cause us to lose perspective. And I think this morning I heard that reflected in a couple of people that were were sharing. Uh, And I was reminded this week of that saying, down in the States uh, on Netflix, they have a movie that I don't think is on Netflix here. uh, And it's the movie called My Daddy's in Heaven. And it's the story of Rebecca, crown owner. Uh, and uh, she lost her husband to a tragic ATVing accident. It was a July 4th party. She, she asked him to go back to the car to, to retrieve something at their family farm. He got on in a four-wheeler, and the, one of the wheels fell off, and he ended up hitting his head, uh, and uh, she ended up uh, having to take him off life support. And the whole movie really is about her losing perspective, uh, throwing away everything that she had believed to be true about God and about her faith uh, for a period of time, totally losing her moral compass, uh, feeling like she had no reason, no purpose left to live, uh, and, and, and no joy whatsoever uh, in her life. And I'm not going to tell you any more of the story because I would encourage you uh, we have a dile- another dilemma at our house is uh, usually Friday nights or Saturday nights when we try to find something to watch on Netflix that's good for everyone, and half an hour later, we still haven't found a movie. That is a movie that's worth uh, watching as a family, so, so watch for that when it does come out here in Ontario. But, but I think there's people here this morning, or maybe all of us, know that saying to be true, that tears in our eyes, whether they be because of a loss a loss of a loved one, a loss of a relationship, a loss of a a job, whether they be tears because of of, um, troubles and difficulties that come our way, uh, whether they be tears because of suffering, suffering in a physical way, suffering uh, due to rejection and ridicule because of our faith, whatever that might be, tears in our eyes cause us to lose perspective. And we find ourselves in those situations. Sometimes we, we're ready to, to, to throw away everything that we once held as true uh, and, and held as dear. And we wonder where the joy has gone. And we lose purpose. Well, as Ben said, I want, I want to take our minds back to the Christians that Peter was writing to. Uh, and we were, looking at, we were looking at that in the spring. And the Christians that Peter is writing to had lost perspective. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they were experiencing suffering. They were experiencing trials. 
And I'm sure from a human perspective, it left them wondering what in the world had they gotten into. Where had the joy gone? Was it really worth it to follow this Jesus Christ when it cost them so much? And as we saw in Peter's first letter to these Christians, he writes to encourage them and to instruct them. And he wants them to know that Jesus should be their ultimate joy in life. And the benefits of the salvation that they receive from him. And what Peter wants them to understand is if if they could just grasp how great the salvation is that they have through and and from Jesus, they could experience, experience enduring joy regardless of the circumstances that they find themselves in. And they could find themselves like Peter, so overwhelmed with the privilege and blessing of being a follower of Jesus. Yet my mind goes back to what we were talking about in those number of weeks that we covered the first nine verses of 1 Peter. And one of the things that stands out to me is this. If we are going to live our faith boldly for Jesus, if we're going to live out the the teachings of Jesus with no compromise, if, if we're willing to challenge the world with the message of the cross, the road's going to be bumpy. We are going to experience rejection, ridicule, suffering. And I got to ask, where's the joy in that? Where is the joy in experiencing those things? That's what Peter's readers were experiencing. If you remember, they were experiencing horrible things because of their faith in Jesus. They they weren't just ostracized. They weren't just rejected. They didn't just lose their jobs. They were fleeing in many cases for their life. They were in hiding. They were being thrown in prison. They were being threatened with death. And so Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them, yes, but to instruct them how to live out their faith in a world that's hostile to that very faith. And so we came up with that, that uh, series title, How to Survive and Thrive in a World That's Not So Faith-Friendly. And, and I think on our bulletin, one of the words has slowly gotten missed out from that title, and I'm going to get that changed. But, but, but what I want us to be thinking of as we go through this letter of 1 Peter is how to survive and thrive in a not-so-faith-friendly world. That's an important distinction. And so Peter writes to them, And he wants them to know that they can survive and they can thrive and they can have joy in the midst of suffering. And so before the summer break, I intended on doing about one sermon on how we can find joy in the midst of suffering. And I think it ended up becoming five or six sermons. And I'm not going to go through it all. You can go onto our website if you're interested. And I would encourage you to to listen to it and, and to read through the first part of First Peter. But Peter shares with them secrets to experiencing joy in the midst of suffering. And so why don't you open your Bible, and we're just going to we'll read the first nine verses of First Peter, and I'll just highlight what those secrets were 
Uh, and then we're going to continue on into First Peter, uh, verse 10. So First Peter chapter 1, anyone using a pew Bible and you can just read out the page number? 980. So verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood. And so we saw that the first secret to experiencing joy in the midst of suffering is to grasp the greatness of our salvation. And here in those first two verses, uh, Peter uh, declares uh, that it's the triune God that's worked together to bring about our salvation. That the Father has chosen us, the Spirit has drawn us, and the, and, and the Son has, has cleansed us through his work uh, on the cross. And then in verses 3 through 5, Peter continues to uh, expand upon this greatness of our salvation. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. Secondly, He has brought us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thirdly, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith, here's the fourth one, are shielded by God's power, divine protection, until the coming of of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so that first secret, grasp the greatness of your salvation. And then we move uh, in verse 6. We see the second secret. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, by for a little while you may have you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And so there's that second secret. Develop an eternal perspective. Against the backdrop of eternity, you'll notice that these trials are only temporary, that they are they're brief. Verse 7, these have come, and here's the third secret, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The third secret, there is a purpose in our suffering. And then we move into verse 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so the fourth secret is focus your attention on Jesus. And you'll find that suffering actually develops an even greater intimacy with Jesus for you. And so those were the secrets of how we can experience joy uh, in the midst of suffering. And so we come to verses 10, uh, the verses that Katie has read for us uh, already, and you would think that Peter is ready. He's ready to move on. He, he's, he's told them how great their salvation is, and he's ready to instruct them on how they can live out their faith in a hostile word, world towards that very faith. And yet he's got one more thing to say. 
It's almost as if he is so overwhelmed thinking about this great salvation that things keep coming to mind. And so in verse 10, he wants to say to us, one second, there's one more thing I've got to tell you. And it's going to blow your mind if you can grasp what I'm trying to show you. It is going to bring the greatness of your salvation and your perception of the blessing and privilege of being a follower of Jesus to an even greater realm. And so take a look at verse 10 and see what Peter says. Concerning this great salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And it's okay, because I have to admit, when I read that for the first time, I wasn't blown away either. In fact, it's kind of a strange series of verses. Angels, prophets, uh, by implication, uh, apostles and and itinerant preachers. Uh, What are they they doing in the same verse or the same series of verses? In fact, the challenge has been put to try to find another verse in Scripture where prophets and angels are mentioned in the same verse. Peter has a lot to say about prophets, but he only says one thing about angels in all of his writings. And it's this one tantalizing detail that he gives us here. But it's against the backdrop of these verses that Peter wants us to refocus our perspective and and to view our experience with salvation. And and the backdrop that Peter wants to create for us, and it's so important to catch this backdrop. In fact, most of what I'm going to be talking about is the backdrop that Peter wants us to understand. It simply flows from the verses itself. And this backdrop is going to be the predicting prophets who predicted the coming of Jesus. And the backdrop is going to be the apostles that proclaim the message, the good news of Jesus. And then the backdrop is going to be the angels who ponder but can't experience this very salvation. And it's against the backdrop of those three things that Peter wants us to refocus our perspective. So let's wait till we get there and then hopefully it will blow you away. But there's a couple of things I want you to note before we start creating the backdrop. And I love the selection of songs that we sang because they were so clearly in all of the songs. The two things that Peter wants you to remember about the salvation is one, it's a work of grace. In fact, in verse 10, Peter uses the word grace to kind of sum up everything. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come. This salvation is a work of grace. Unmerited favor. 
mean, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We weren't worthy of it. Rather, we receive it regardless or, or in spite of our sin. You know, that, that verse often comes to mind when we come to the table every Sunday morning that God demonstrates, and that's an active verb, God is demonstrating to us over and over again His great love in that He sent His Son to die for us. Which leads us to the second thing that Peter wants us to make sure we understand about the salvation. It is a work of grace. It's nothing to do with us. And it comes at a great cost. Often those things which are most valuable to us have a great cost. Uh, Maybe that cost is in labor that went into it. Uh, Perhaps in in preservation, this this valuable thing has been preserved from years and years and years gone by. And often, those things that are most valuable simply because they cost the most. And our salvation comes at the greatest of costs, that God sent His Son to die in our place. So it's so important to keep in mind about this great salvation. It's a work of grace and it cost Jesus his life. And so now Peter wants to paint this backdrop for us. And so first he starts talking about the predicting prophets. Uh, who were the prophets? They were men in the Old Testament who God chose to be his spokespeople. Uh, really they had two jobs. One was to proclaim the word of God and secondly was to predict future events. And that was Peter's focus. They're predicting future events. And what Katie has already explained a little bit and what Peter wants us to understand, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit as well. The prophets didn't understand everything that they knew. You get that? They didn't understand all of the prophecies that they were given. Ray Pritchard, one of my favorite preachers, he uses the illustration that the prophets are like archers and God gives them arrows of truth. And it's like the prophets get this arrow of truth and they go, I don't really understand all of what this arrow is about, but I'm going to shoot it up in the air anyways. And they put it in their bow and they pull the bow back as far as they can and off goes the arrow of truth Beyond the horizon, where it lands, at what time it lands, they're not really sure. They didn't understand all that they knew. But the one thing that Peter wants us to see is that they predicted the coming of Jesus Christ. I remember as a camper at Joy Bible Camp, and I'm sure it's experienced at many camps, as a camper and a counselor at Joy Bible Camp, how thankful I was for the hay bales that were beyond the targets for archery. So so you can imagine three or four campers letting their arrows go who knows where. If it wasn't for the fact that there was bales of hay and then a whole forest behind that hopefully no one was behind, the damage that could be inflicted. Imagine this. 300 arrows shot up into the sky by different people from different places over a period of 1,500 years. That sounds dangerous. I don't know where you would want to stand. 
probably the place you wouldn't want to be standing is beside Jesus. Because every one of those 300 arrows landed perfectly at his feet. Proving that he was the promised Messiah. We could spend the rest of the morning just reading and and. Brian, I'm glad that I mentioned to you the the one-year Bible. I thought when you got up this morning, uh uh-oh, here goes Brian's advertisement about one-year Bible, and yet you transitioned right into what I wanted to talk about, and so I apologize for prejudging you when you started to talk. (laughs) But it is so true, just in Isaiah, the prophecies that are perfectly fulfilled in the coming of Jesus uh, and in his death. And I could read to you prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born into the tribe of Judah. Uh, His ministry would begin in Galilee. He would work miracles, teach parables. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He'd be betrayed by a friend. He'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He would be accused by false witnesses. He would be wounded and bruised. His hands and feet would be pierced. He'd be crucified with thieves. His garments would be torn apart. His bones would not be broken. His side would be pierced. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would rise from the dead. That's just a small list of the prophecies that were perfectly fulfilled in the coming and in the death of Jesus Christ. And for many of us, that's all we need. We're convinced. And yet maybe some of us aren't quite yet convinced. Someone has figured out that for a person to have fulfilled just eight of these prophecies, the odds would be one to one with 17 zeros after the one. I only know about what nine zeros is after that. I don't even know how you explain that number, but that's the odds. Put into an illustration, it would be like putting a blindfolded person with one marked coin in the state of Texas, two feet deep of coins, throw the marked coin over their shoulder, have them begin at the start of the state, and stop when they want, still blindfolded, and be able to pick that one coin up. That's for eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 60 major prophecies at his coming. Are you convinced? The prophets predicted the coming of Jesus, but they didn't fully understand what they were prophesying. Imagine if I'd given you a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. I didn't show you the box that it came from. In fact, I gave you a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that 10 years ago I gave somebody else a piece from that jigsaw puzzle. I got the jigsaw puzzle from my dad, and he had given a few people pieces of that jigsaw puzzle. No one had seen the cover, but everyone kind of knew the jigsaw piece that was given before. I think you get the idea. Could you imagine what it would be like trying to figure out what picture, the big picture that that jigsaw puzzle piece belonged to. That's what it was like for the prophets. They were given a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. They may have known what pieces were given out before, but but they didn't see the big picture. They didn't know exactly what it was going going to look like. They didn't understand everything that they predicted, but Peter tells us they desperately wanted to understand. It says... They searched intently and with the greatest care. They wanted to know the time. What they were predicting was going to happen. 
They wanted to know the circumstances or the person in which what they were predicting was going to be the case. But as hard as they, they, they studied and researched and thought about it, they just couldn't put it all together. But one thing they did prophesy is that this coming Messiah would suffer. And that was a great problem for them because most Jewish people didn't want to hear that their promised Messiah was going to be a suffering Messiah. That caused a lot of trouble for the prophets. Caused a lot of trouble for the Christians in the early church to talk about a suffering Messiah. They started changing the definition of what suffering might actually look like. Some rabbis actually started to teach that there must be two messiahs, one who is going to suffer and one who is going to experience glory. The prophets couldn't put it all together, but they knew that it was something special and that God was up to something. And the other thing the prophets knew is that all this hard work, all this predicting, all these arrows being shot up in the air, much of it wasn't for their benefit. As Katie said, it was for for the benefit of future generations. Peter says it's for you and me. That the labor of the prophets primarily was for you and I. Because we live in an age of fulfillment. And so you got the prophets. The predicting prophets. Desperately desiring to understand everything that they predicted. And then you've got the proclaiming or the preaching apostles and those who followed after. The, the prophets uh, predicted the coming of Jesus. The apostles took the truth concerning Jesus and they proclaimed it to whoever, to whoever would listen. Have you ever wondered how the church spread to what it is today, to the, to the ends of the world? And yet it began with a bunch of followers of Jesus huddled in fear after Jesus was crucified. And yet it spread, and it spread, and it spread. And here we got these Christians that Peter's writing to, fleeing across the Roman Empire. Oh, and it's now spread across the Roman Empire to today, where we hear it freely. And the message of Jesus is spread across the world. Well, the answer is in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Empowered by the Spirit, these men and then these women and itinerant preachers throughout history have taken the good news of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and have proclaimed it. Sometimes at great cost, but have proclaimed it. You know, and I think of our mission and our vision here at Auburn because we just talked about it the last couple of weeks. And we want to see this good news of Jesus get out of the walls of this church and to see people in this community and our own communities come to a saving relationship with Jesus. And I think, well, what was the secret of the early church? Because they didn't have internet. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have a web page. They didn't have CDs, DVDs. They didn't have... Nowhere near the resources that we have. Not that those things are bad. You see, the sacred responsibility of the church is to take the word of God 
and to proclaim it empowered by the Spirit. That has to underlie all those things that I just mentioned. And that was the secret of the early church. They believed the Word of God and they preached the good news of Jesus empowered by the Spirit. That's God's plan for growing His church. To preach His good news, to preach the Word empowered by the Spirit. And so we've got predicting prophets, we've got preaching apostles, and then we come to the angels. This one little phrase at the end. The pondering angels, because I had to find another P word that I could uh, use. Predicting prophets, preaching apostles, pondering angels. Just a month or so ago, we were at my niece's wedding. And I've been at a been, I, had, I was at my own wedding, and I've been to a number of weddings, and, but other than standing at the front or having married somebody, I think it was the closest I've ever sat to the front as just a spectator. And there was a lot of goofy things that took place at the beginning of this wedding. The, the flower girls were the grandmothers, uh, and the ring bearers were the grandfathers who were dressed up as secret agents, and they were ring security. So there was all this fun stuff going on. But all the while, Andrew, the groom, and he's kind of a real expressive guy to begin with, but he stood at the front, and it was almost like his expression was saying, okay, get this over with. I want to see my bride. He had this expectancy on his face that was so obvious. And after the bridesmaids, everyone was up, the only thing that was left was for Kelly, my niece, to show up at the back door. And you could almost see like he was trying to see through the wall. He wanted to see his bride at this longing and this looking. And I thought, you know, that's, that's what I imagine we would be like. Could you imagine if someone told us that this is true, if we all go to the back door and we just peer through it, we will see into the workings of heaven. We would run. I think we would run to the back door. We would push and shove to get the best view. Some of us would be on our knees looking through people's legs. Some of us would be on tippy toes. All of us would be longing to get a view of what's going on in heaven. And what Peter says, that's what the angels are doing. But they're looking at us. What in the world is going on here that would capture the interest and the fascination of the angels? Well, there's a few things. The angels, first of all, long to understand our experience of salvation. Because it's not an experience that they share in. There are no saved angels. Salvation is for humans. Only we get to experience the wonders of God's grace. And the angels are fascinated. They long to understand this experience that they don't show. The experience of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the new birth. And so the angels long to understand this experience that they don't share in. Secondly, I think just like we have a, a, an awe when we think of some spiritual truths like the Trinity, uh, the virgin birth, the, the resurrection of Jesus, we stand in awe as we try to even begin to comprehend what those things are about. The angels 
Likewise, stand in awe at the grace of our salvation. They are amazed that God loves us so much. And then third, I think, because the angels don't experience salvation for themselves, what they learn about the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God comes by observing us and our experience with salvation. They learn about the grace of salvation by observing our experience with it, but as well, and this is really convicting to me, they learn about the sanctifying grace of our salvation. What God does in partnership with us to remove sin and sinful habits and to see us become more and more like Jesus. They understand the sanctifying grace of Jesus by observing how we respond to the situations that we find ourselves in. Situations of suffering, determining priorities, making decisions. And and I can only ask myself, what am I teaching the angels? Because they're watching. They're watching how we respond. And so we got the predicting prophets, we've got the proclaiming apostles, we've got the pondering angels. And this is the backdrop. Everyone clear with the backdrop? Prophets, apostles, and angels. This is the backdrop by which Peter wants us to refocus our perspective and to view our experience with God's salvation or the offer of God's salvation if you've never taken uh, that offer for yourself. What is Peter wanting us to see? First of all, Peter wants us to see the privilege and blessing that we have as followers of Jesus today. Those things that the prophets long to understand, those things that the angels pondered with fascination and intrigue but never could experience for themselves, we experience and understand every day. We are more privileged than the prophets and the angels. We live in the day of fulfillment and grace. The offer of salvation is is offered even today. That's why Peter was overwhelmed with the privilege and blessing of being a follower of Jesus regardless of the circumstances. The other thing Peter wants us to see against this backdrop, especially for those of you who are here this morning, and there are tears in your eyes. There are tears in your eyes because of the situations that you're finding yourself in. And you're having a real hard time keeping perspective. And what Peter wants you to know is take a look. God loves you so much. He planned all this for you. Those errors of truth, they had your name on it. When the apostles started spreading the good news of Jesus, they had Auburn 2018 in mind as that message spread worldwide. That experience, the the angels can't share share him, but it fascinates them. That's an experience for you and I. And then finally, 
what Peter wants us to understand is against this backdrop and, and in this context, the greatest sin is to take what God has done for granted. Those things that the prophets could only wish they could fully understand. Those things that the angels pondered and were fascinated by but could never experience. And yet we at times can find ourselves bored stiff with it. I shared this saying with Allison and and with this I'm going to close. If we're bored with God, heaven doesn't have a better alternative. And how can we keep ourselves from being bored with God taken our great salvation for granted. It's the spiritual disciplines. It's being in God's Word. Memorize the first nine verses of 1 Peter. Actually take those questions each week. We encourage you to to keep in mind. Actually keep them in mind. See where God's at work. See how God's speaking to you through Scripture. See what your neighbors are saying about Him. And allow yourself to be gripped by and grasp the greatness of his salvation for us and his amazing love. Arnie, sorry, I probably took a few minutes. Too many, but why don't you come up and we can, we can sing that song that's very fitting. And uh, allow these words to speak to you. This is what God, through Jesus, has done for you. This is amazing love.